called The Way of Jesus. And over the past three weeks, we have been um, journeying through the Sermon on the Mount, continuing that journey, but we've been looking at Matthew chapter 6. And in verse 1 of Matthew 6, Jesus tells us that he's going to talk to us about these practices of righteousness. That is what we're about to dig into. And so over the past three weeks, we've looked at generosity, and we spent two weeks on prayer, and today we're going to dive into fasting. And Jesus' audience on the Sermon on the Mount, they would have been very familiar with these three practices. They were the most common rabbinic teachings, which meant that rabbis at the time would teach their disciples these three practices above all else. Or we might say it in this day and age, like they were the most important spiritual disciplines that people were, would engage in. And so Jesus is trying to teach us, hey, we're about to learn about these practices of righteousness, and you have to be careful about how you engage with them so that you can do them unto God and not unto men. So we're going to continue today with these practices, and we're going to learn about fasting. Um, and if you've ever been here on a Sunday before and heard me speak, you've probably heard me talk about my daughter. She's two years old. She's very cute. She's downstairs this morning, and any other time we've left her down there, she has screamed her head off like bloody murder. This morning, she actually went to someone else and, like, went to play, so it's very good. It's good progress. Um, but she um, is very cute, and I don't know if any of you have ever experienced this being around a toddler, but when you watch a toddler, when you try to raise a toddler, it's like holding up a mirror to your most real, raw, and sometimes not like the most pretty parts of yourself, and you see your toddler living them out in front of you. Um, she recently learned how to say her own name, and it's so cute. She says it, her name's Winry, and she says it in this really cute little two-year-old kind of way. But now that she can say it, she started referring to herself in the third person. And my daughter is a little bit of a diva. That's what her aunts say. And now that she can refer to herself in the third person, it's only dialed that up like 100%. Her drama level has just increased. And she'll do this thing where she's sad, maybe like really sad or fake sad, and she'll go, Winry's sad. And she'll just say that so that we know that she's sad. And my sister has this joke where she imagines her like on a sitcom and she like turns the camera and like winks after she says it, you know, like she's just messing with us. Um, but she does this other thing where she'll be playing independently in the other room and suddenly I'll hear her and she'll be saying, no, Winry, no, Winry. And I'll go in there and she's already in the act of doing what she knows she's not supposed to be doing. And it's like she's trying to convince herself not to do it, but she's still doing it. Or I'll tell her to not do something, and she really wants to do it so badly that she'll go, no, mama, and point out the room. Like, it's time for you to go, because you can't keep telling me not to do this thing that I really want to do. And it's because toddlers struggle with this thing called impulse control. It's not that they don't want to obey. They want to obey. They truly don't know how. They're learning how to control their impulses. And as a parent, when you're trying to teach them about this, you have to confront your own impulse control. And you start to take stock of your own habits and the own, your way of going about life, and you realize, hold up, do I even have any impulse control at all? Because I just told my daughter scream time was done, but I've been on my phone for like the last hour, and I'm not planning to stop. I don't have a parent telling me to stop, right? So... We have to examine ourselves. And I realized that the words coming out of my, my daughter's mouth look a lot like my own inner dialogue. No, Allie. No, Allie. And that's because we, as spiritual people, have earthly tendencies. And in Scripture, this is called the flesh. Paul says it like this in Romans 7, verses 15 through 20. 
Now, I refer to this as the tongue twister of the Bible. So if I get through it and you understand anything I just said, we'll be on a good place for this morning. But it says, for I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is the sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. Whew. If that doesn't sound like a toddler, I don't know what does. But the truth is that it can be said for us as well. The good things we want to do, we just find ourselves not doing them. And the things we don't want to do, we just find ourselves doing. And Paul says that it is because of our flesh, the sinful and earthly desires in nature within us. In Matthew 6, remember that Jesus tells us we're looking at these practices of righteousness for our lives. And the way that we become more and more righteous is through a process called sanctification. And I like to define this as becoming more and more like Jesus through discipline. That's how we are sanctified. So I want to propose something to you this morning that I think might explain why these three things were known as the most important spiritual disciplines of the time. And it is from 1 Thessalonians 5.23, which says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think we can make some comparisons here about how we sanctify ourselves unto the Lord. Darrell taught us three weeks ago about the practice of generosity and how the motivations of our heart or our soul, those two are interchangeable in scripture, heart and soul, have to come into alignment with God so that we can be generous, so that we can give of ourselves, we can give of our desires unto others. And then Ben has been teaching us over the past couple weeks about prayer and how this is our spiritual act of worship unto the Lord. It's how we connect with him, how we connect our spirit with God and what he wants for us. And then I want to propose that fasting is the practice that aligns our body, our flesh, with what God has for us. So to integrate all of these things, to live as a righteous follower of Jesus, we have to sanctify ourselves in these three ways, which brings us to the practice that we're gonna continue today, talking about today, which is fasting. So let me finally, after that big lead up, read the text for this week. We are in Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18, which says, whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, when I learned that I was going to be teaching about fasting, um, I thought it was really ironic because this might be true. I might be the least qualified person in this room to talk about fasting. I have had little to no success with it in the traditional sense. Um, I can still remember the first time I fasted from food for a day. I was a junior in high school, and my youth group was doing this 21-day challenge. And one of the challenges is that we were supposed to fast for a day. And I believed really strongly in what this scripture was teaching us. I knew this verse from Matthew 6. No one else was supposed to know what I was doing, only God. So I didn't tell anyone that I was fasting for the whole day. It was just between me and him. I didn't want anyone to know. And I made it through the whole school day without a problem. 
But after school, I stayed to help with a club. And my youngest sister is here this morning, and she'll think that's the funniest part of the story because she thinks I'm a really big nerd and that it's hilarious that I was involved in so many clubs in high school. But that is not the funniest part because I was um, helping with a bulletin board. Who's ever helped with a bulletin board before? Like decorated a bulletin board? Okay, a handful of you. So you'll know what I'm talking about when I say you have to stand with your arms up for longer than you would imagine. You would not realize how strenuous it is to decorate a bulletin board. So I'm standing there with my arms up, trying to decorate this bulletin board, and I don't know if it was like that motion or what, but suddenly I was on the ground looking up at a group of my classmates and teachers all staring down at me really concerned. Um, I'd passed out because I was fasting. And still to this day, I have a friend from high school that I'm still friends with today. He will not let it go. He asked me, like regularly, so have you had any bulletin board accidents lately? How has your success been hanging up bulletin boards? So I did not succeed in keeping this a secret. Still, I'm not gonna tell you how many years later, a friend talks to me about when I attempted traditional fasting. So since then, I've tried to fast some, you know, I've done other fasts, like a smoothie fast, fasted from my phone, things like that, but I haven't tried a traditional fast. And I feel like I did not have a full and deep comprehensive understanding of what fasting was meant to do in our lives until I was bringing this teaching here to you today. So if you also find the concept of fasting challenging or intimidating or confusing, don't worry. We're all going to learn about it together. We're going to jump in this together. We're going to learn something today. So let's just start in verse 16 with the first three words that say, whenever you fast. We're just going to stop there. We're going to take it easy. We're going to ease into it. Whenever you fast. So let's just establish something here. Jesus was assuming that the people listening to him on the Sermon on the Mount were already fasting. That was already a practice they were familiar with. They knew what they were doing. They knew how to fast, when to fast. Jesus is not concerned with what fasting is because the people there already know about it. He's more concerned with the how and a little bit of the why. But might I suggest, I could be wrong, there could be a bunch of expert fasters in this room. I don't know all of your fasting history. But I feel like in the modern day church, we have lost a complete understanding of what fasting is and why we should engage with it. So today, we're gonna talk about what fasting is, how we fast, and why we fast. And we're gonna start with what Jesus doesn't say with what fasting is. So I'm gonna take some liberties here with the scripture and we're gonna start with what is fasting. Now, here I might disappoint some of you because I just took you on this journey where I said where we're going to go today and it made it seem like I'm about to present to you this doctoral thesis on what fasting is and how you can best do it. Sorry, that's not what's going to happen um, because to present this message, I did a lot of research and I feel like the main thing I have learned about fasting is that it's a mystery. It's a really big mystery how we engage with our flesh and turn our desires over to the Lord and then he somehow does something with it. So we're going to attempt to dive into this mystery together, and I hope that you don't leave confused, but excited to engage with the Lord and dive deeper into this practice with him and learn from him about what this can look like in your life. So um, how many of you grew up learning something about fasting, anything about fasting? Okay, a good bit of us. So like I said earlier, I don't know if you were anything like me, the way that I learned about fasting was in a, usually a context of like a Bible study or a sermon series, a challenge we were supposed to do. And I guess because I was in middle school and high school, we were most often taught to do it with something other than food. They were trying to, I guess, teach us discipline. I don't know. But when I was thinking back on the way I learned to fast and what I should fast from, it aged me really 
quickly because I was like, oh, I like, if I'm fasting from my phone, that really meant like calling my friends on our landline. Or like if I was fasting like from the internet, that meant like I couldn't get on AIM. Like I couldn't go to dial up and like message my friends on AIM. Or like magazines, like that was a suggestion of something to fast from when I was in high school. So that was my context growing up. I was also taught about fasting in the traditional sense, like to not fast from food, but it was always in this kind of weird context. And I don't think it was meant badly, but it was like, if you're really serious about something, like if you really want God to answer your prayer, you pray and you fast. Because if you're not eating while you're praying, then God will know how serious you are, and then he will definitely answer your prayer. So if you want something from God, like for real, for real, you fast and you pray at the same time. Well, the Bible paints a very different picture of what fasting is. I wanna share some of that with you this morning. We don't have time to go through the whole biblical history of fasting, but I do wanna start with just a few examples in scripture. So after Jesus was baptized and began to start his ministry, he went into the wilderness and fasted for 40 days. Moses fasted for 40 days before he received the 10 commandments. Elijah, on his way to Mount Horeb, fasted for 40 days. It's actually a really interesting story, if you ever get the chance to read it. An angel, Elijah is like tired. He's like losing his strength from his ministry. And an angel brings him this meal, and then it sustains him for 40 days as he's traveling to Mount Horeb. It's really interesting. In Esther, God's people fasted when they heard about Haman's decree that all of the Jewish people would be killed. It was their immediate response to start fasting. And then Esther asked all of her people to fast for three days before she would go before the king, And then after God saved the people, they created a holiday called Purim. And the day before Purim, you fast, and it's called the Fast of Esther. Nehemiah fasted out of grief when he heard about the condition of Jerusalem and his people. David fasted for seven days when his child fell terminally ill. And what's interesting is he only stopped that seven-day fast because his child passed away. He did not see his child healed at the end of this fast. The people of Nineveh fasted after um, Jonah brought them the message from God about their wicked ways. After Saul heard the voice of God on the road to Damascus, he fasted the three days that he was blind. The early church fasted and prayed together all the time. And when they were fasting, that is when they received the revelation that Paul and Barnabas had been set aside for mission. And then after they received that revelation, they fasted and prayed again before they sent them out. Paul and Barnabas also prayed and fasted before declaring elders of the church. Now, these are just a handful of the examples of fasting that we have in scripture but I think we can pull some principles from all of the different examples that we have. And the first is that fasting in the biblical sense is not eating. That's all it is, is not eating. So not to get all Bible scholarly on you, but the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for fast is to cover one's mouth. The literal translation is to not eat. There are about, this is where you can get into some mystery of it, some debate. There's like 50 to 70 references in scripture about fasting, depending on how you want to define it. We can define it as lots of different ways. But every reference except for one, which we're going to get to later, um, cueing that up, is about not eating. So how did we take what we see in Scripture, these 50 to 70 references minus one, and turn that into you can kind of just fast from whatever you want to, whatever is causing you to not be close to God? We'll get to that in a second. But another thing that fasting is, is it is a response to the work of God. So when people saw God's strength on display, his power on display, their immediate response was to fast. Fasting is a response to the hardships of this world. When something, when a tragedy happened, a death, a sickness, fasting was the immediate response. It's an act of repentance. 
So when people were confronted, like Nineveh, when they were confronted with their wickedness, with their sinful ways, their immediate response was to fast to the Lord and surrender to him, ask for his mercy, ask for his forgiveness. Fasting is a way of calling out to God when we need something, when we're looking for his power to intercede. When Esther asked for the people to fast before she went before the king, that was calling unto God. Ultimately, fasting is a way to surrender ourselves. It is a way to say, we are not in control. God, you are in control. We see your power. We see this hard thing. We see where we need you. It's a way to put, to surrender our flesh to him so that he can do the work. So let's talk about what fasting is not. Just two things that it is not. It is not a way to get what we want from God. So throughout the Old and New Testament, we see people fasting for various reasons, for things that they're asking for. And sometimes God gives it to them. He gives them forgiveness. He gives them healing. He gives them revelation. He gives them what they asked for. But we can get in trouble when we create a false causation that because they fasted, God gave them this thing. The goal of fasting should be to surrender our plans to God's plans so that he can do the work that he wants to do. There's this author I really admire. Her name is Hannah Brencher, and she posted this video on Instagram recently where she said, if you're reading the Bible and you start to see too much of your story in scripture, it's time to reorient your heart because the Bible is God's story. It's not our story. We get to be part of it, and that's awesome, but it is a story about God. So we have to be careful when we read stories about fasting. Like if we read a story about a battle that was coming up and God's people fasted and they asked for victory and they get it, if we read that and we're like, ooh, this is great. This is what the solution I've been looking for. Now I can fast for whatever I want and God will give it to me. We have missed the point. The point is that God was victorious. He took the victory in that battle. He did his plans that he wanted to come through. So fasting is about surrendering our desires under God's desires. And if we try to use these, these practices of righteousness, these spiritual disciplines as a way to get what we want, we're not surrendering to God. We are trying to control what God does through these disciplines. The second thing that fasting is not is it is not a seasonal act of discipline. So one thing that can happen when we expand the definition of fasting to move from just not eating to other things like our phone or or Netflix, or chocolate, or carbs, is we can confuse discipline with fasting. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It's something we're called to every single day, to give our life to the Lord, to discipline ourselves so that we can live out his kingdom calling. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 24 through 27. Don't you know that runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. Now everyone who competes, exercises self-control in everything. They do it to receive a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. So I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. Instead, I discipline my body and bring it under strict control so that after preaching to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So Paul understands that he has to keep his body under control at all times or else sin is going to enter into his life. And his fleshly desires are gonna slow him down in this race that he's trying to run. So as followers of Christ, we already have this responsibility to be disciplined, to keep our body under control so that we can live for the Lord. Throughout scripture, fasting is clearly something different. Discipline, that's daily. Fasting is seasonal. It's a response 
to the movement of the Holy Spirit. It is a response to what God is doing on this earth. It is a response to the hard thing that, things that we're experiencing that we want God to intervene in, that we need his power for, that our flesh cannot do the work for. So, and when we're going through these things, our flesh will push back. Think about that. When you're going through a hard season, you can feel the push of your flesh against it. So when we feel our flesh, our desires trying to control or fight or flee, that is when we know it's time for us to fast. And what we see in scripture is that this was so innate to their culture. It's just something that they naturally did. When they saw a movement of God, when they went through something hard, the people of God would automatically fast. And I think that that is the thing that we have lost today as a church. We have lost this automatic, this innate response to fasting. Think about the past couple years. When COVID entered into our world, when it hit the world, when it hit our country, our response should have been fasting. When we see violent discrimination against our brothers and sisters of color, our response should be to fast. When Russia invaded Ukraine, the church should have immediately started fasting. When we see our neighbors hurting, when we see our family hurting, or when we feel the weight of sin in our own lives, our response should be to fast. And we have lost this. We have lost this practice as a church. But even as I say those words, I'm preaching to the choir because that sounds really hard. It sounds really hard to change this way about our lives. It sounds weighty and difficult and honestly a little inconvenient. Can you imagine every time we feel the pressing of the Lord, every time we feel heartbreak, we start fasting? What would that actually look like in our day-to-day lives? But the beautiful thing is that we have a patient and a merciful father who wants to teach us how to do this. He's not just going to leave us with this weight of, what do we do next? I feel convicted. How do I do it? He tells us in Matthew 6. So the next question, how do we fast? To learn more about how we fast, I want to I put on my teacher hat again like I did with scripture and just give a very brief history of how the early church fasted and how I've seen that change over time. So during Jesus' time, most of the Jewish people and the Pharisees fasted on Monday and Thursday. So, and I find this really hilarious, the early church decided they would fast, they would keep the practice, but they would fast on Wednesdays and Fridays so that they wouldn't be doing it the same day as the hypocrites. This was... Yeah, I know, right? Some things never change. Some things never change. Um, But it was also the day that Jesus was taken to the cross and he was crucified on the cross. So they chose those days for a reason, but they also wanted them to be different than the Jewish people. Um, They considered this the regular fast. So twice a week, sun up to sundown, they would fast. They would never fast on Saturday and Sunday, except for Holy Saturday, the Saturday before Easter. There were also periodic fasts like Lent. We're in the season of Lent right now. But when they fasted for Lent, it was always not eating like we talked about. So from sunup to sundown, they wouldn't eat. At sundown, they would eat a simple meal that didn't include meat or wine. And that was it. They fasted from food for 40 days. People would also fast before they were baptized. They would fast before the Lord's Supper. They would fast before they appointed elders. You get the point. They fasted for everything. And then interestingly, the decline of fasting in the modern church actually happened because of the Protestant Reformation. The Protestant church, when they pulled away, they saw, they felt that the Catholic church had started to make these practices just rituals, and they had lost all of their meaning. So the Protestant church was like, we want to look different. We want to distinguish ourselves. We're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to do what the Catholic church has done. So in modern day, in the modern day, we have started to try to fast again, but we have taken it and made it different than it was in the early church, which I think is, there's some good things about that. But, so according to the early church, the way that we should fast is twice a week, Wednesday and Friday, and for special occasions and for holidays. 
Again, can you imagine fasting? No food twice a week. But the good news for us is that this doesn't quite seem to be what Jesus is super concerned about in Matthew chapter 6. So how does what he is explaining in Matthew 6 apply to us today? He says in verse 16, Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your father who is in secret. Now, what I find really fascinating here about what Jesus is saying is in the Old Testament, almost every single example of fasting has to do with mourning, grieving, putting on your sackcloth, sitting in ashes. This seems very different from almost every single example we have in scripture. So my first question is about sackcloth. Like, where did they get this? Like, every time something sad or upsetting or tragic happens, people just throw on their sackcloth. Like, did they just have it on their person? Did they have, like, a travel size one in their biblical fanny pack? Where they, like, hold up, this is really sad, but I gotta go home, I gotta grab my sackcloth so that we can get to morning. Like, I really wanna know how this worked. But my second observation is that in the Old Testament, this seemed really genuine. Like, it seemed like an authentic response to the emotions that they were feeling, to the grief that they were feeling. When I hear that David, upon his child falling terminally ill, put on his mourning clothes, clothes and laid in dirt for seven days not eating, I can relate to that. It seems real. So when did this happen? When did this shift happen from this being an authentic response to the move from, for the move of God to a hypocritical one? And why is Jesus saying that if you fast in this way, in a way that shows that you're grieving, that you've already received your earthly reward. As we know, when Jesus is referring to the hypocrites, he means the religious rulers, the Pharisees. So this tells us that at some point in history, fasting and grieving, showing that you're grieving, turned from an authentic response to a religious one. And we can gain some insight into this from this parable in Luke. So Luke chapter 18, verses nine through 14 says, to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. I love that he just sets up the audience. He's like, hey, all of you who are looking down on everyone, this one's for you. Um, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. The way I picture it is that he's like praying this loudly out loud. He's like, not like this dude right here, right next to me. Um, calling you out, man. Um, he's like, I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But this is Jesus talking again. The tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So in this passage, Jesus mentions all three of these practices of righteousness, prayer, generosity, and fasting. And he's showing us that the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, have taken them and turned them from tools of righteousness to sanctify themselves into tools of self-righteousness in comparison to the people around them. These spiritual practices have become a sense of pride to the Pharisees instead of a surrendering of their pride unto God, where we can see the tax collector humbly asking God for his mercy. He has a reliance on the Lord. He's surrendering all of himself to God, just hoping 
that God will have mercy on him. So two things we need to take away here. Humility is necessary with our walk in our walk with the Lord. And spiritual disciplines must be about surrendering to God, not trying to manage our own holiness. Then Jesus is saying that we shouldn't make our fasting obvious before others, or we already have one thing, our earthly reward. And I wanna make a distinction here because we just learned about the early church and we know that they were corporately fasting together. They were fasting when they heard that Paul and Barnabas had been set aside by God for mission. And they all knew that one another were fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays. So is Jesus saying not to let anyone know that you're fasting? I don't think he is. I don't think that's what he's saying. I think he's saying keep the pain of fasting between you and God and allow the fruit of fasting to be corporate, to be shared. So if the pain of fasting is obvious to others, then you already have your reward in heaven. Let's think about my daughter for a second, proclaiming her sadness to everyone that she sees. She really wants people to know that she's sad. And because she's still a baby, we comfort her. We want her to know, some of you might roll your eyes at this, but that all of her emotions are valid and supported and that we love her through them. We might do too good of a job with that because we'll sometimes hear her being like, oh, Winry, or poor Winry. And we're like, now she's mocking our comfort of her. But um, she wants attention when she's not getting her way, when something is hard for her. And it's almost like we can see this in the life of the Pharisees when they walk around all grim because they're fasting. It's like they're saying, Pharisees, sad. <laughs> and their only goal was to justify their righteousness in the eyes of others. They didn't care about surrendering to the Father. But Jesus is calling us to something different. In verse 17, but when you fast... There is that when you fast phrase again, put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your father who is in secret. So fasting is meant to cost us something. It's meant to be hard. It's meant to be painful. Surrendering our desires and our flesh to the Lord, that's really hard work. And when you throw eating into it as the main source of that, it gets really difficult. We have routines around eating. We have ways that we like to do things, connecting with people. The word hangry is a word for a reason. We don't like to not eat. My husband and I have this running joke that when one thing is off about me physically, I'm a nightmare. Like if I'm too tired, I haven't had enough coffee, I need to eat something, I'm thirsty, I become almost unbearable, very grumpy. But this is the work we have to do with the Father in secret this hard, hangry work that will sanctify us unto God so that we can do the kingdom purposes that he has given us. So even if denying yourself food for a day is the hardest thing you're, you've ever done, Jesus is like, deal with it. Keep that between you and the Lord. Take a shower, comb your hair, maybe so throw some product in it, go to work, go about your business as usual, and don't let anyone know that you're struggling so that God can do this good work within you. So let's recap the how really quick. I don't believe that Jesus is telling us, hey, you need to start fasting every Wednesday and Friday. Here's the when you need to fast, how often you need to fast, or even if we should fast individually and corporately. He's saying, when you fast, deny yourself. Surrender yourself. Surrender your flesh unto the Lord so that he can do this good work. Which brings us to the why. What is that good work that God wants to do through us why, while we're fasting? Why do we fast? And I believe that the reason we should fast can be summed up in one passage of scripture. It also happens to be that passage of scripture I was alluding to earlier, the only one I have found where it doesn't involve eating. And it is Isaiah 58. We're gonna start with verses one through seven, which says, 
Cry out loudly. Don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. They seek me day after day and delight to know my ways, like a nation that does what is right and does not abandon the justice of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments. They delight in the nearness of God. Why have we fasted, but you have not seen? We have denied ourselves, but you haven't noticed. Look, do as you please on the day of your fast. Look, you do as you please on the day of your fast. You oppress all your workers. You fast with contention and strife, strife to strike viciously with your fist. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to make your voice heard on high. Will the fast I choose be like this? A day for a person to deny himself? To bow his head like a reed and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? This isn't, isn't this the fast I chose? To break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and tear off every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and the homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him and not ignore your own flesh and blood? Here's what I think Jesus is ultimately trying to say in Matthew chapter 6 and what God is declaring in Isaiah. We should fast. We need to fast. It is a spiritual discipline that the Lord has called us to. But the type of fasting he has chosen has less to do with what fasting is and how we should fast and everything to do with why we need to fast. I'm a pretty sarcastic person, so I'm really into the tone that God is using in this verse, in these verses in Isaiah. He's like, is this really what they think I said? To sit around sad? Not eating in their sackcloth and a pile of dirt? Is that really what they think I asked them to do? Is that it? All somber, all sad, no. God is saying, I did not call you to die to yourself, to sanctify yourself, to sacrifice yourself for the religious what's and how's of fasting. He did not call us to some shallow, unintentional, religious just motions. He has called us, you and me, into the deep end, into real spiritual warfare where these practices of righteousness can unleash the kingdom of heaven on earth. He is saying that if your fasting is not breaking the chains of injustice and setting the oppressed free, it is not real fasting. If when you're not eating, you're still treating people badly and doing whatever you want, it is not real fasting. If when you're not eating, you're not taking that food that's just sitting there uneaten and giving it to the poor so that they will not go hungry, it is not fasting. He is saying if we do not feel the pain and the weight of our brothers and sisters and our neighbors so deeply that it brings us to our knees in prayer and causes us to want to stop eating, we do not understand the power that he has given us to unleash the kingdom through these practices of righteousness. So, Honestly, even though most of scripture refers to fasting as not eating, we have God telling us that if we choose not to eat, but the kingdom is not moving, it doesn't matter. So what I would call you to today is to fast from that. What is the thing that is keeping you from doing this work that God talks about in Isaiah? From writing injustices, from loving your neighbor well, from doing the kingdom work that you were called to do, what type of fasting will allow that to happen? What will bring about the true fast? So in Matthew 6, Jesus isn't just saying, don't go around looking sad or getting attention from others. He's saying, if that, if you think that's the point, you have missed it entirely. 
because I have a bigger plan with how to use your sanctification for the world. And the point of what Jesus is trying to tell us, he tells us at the conclusion of Matthew chapter 6, verse 18. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And what does this reward look and feel like? I believe that the answer can also be found as we continue in Isaiah 58, starting in verse 9. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves, if you sacrifice yourselves, if you sanctify yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. So God has a beautiful plan with how he wants to do away with the dark things in this world and bring the light of the kingdom. And it starts with us. It starts with us surrendering the desires of our flesh to him so that he can use us to do his plans of bringing the kingdom to earth. You are the one who has been called to stop injustice. You are the one who has been called to break the yoke of oppression. You are the one who can change the lives of your neighbors and your families. You can do it. And when we do these things, God has a promise here for us in Isaiah that he will strengthen us, that he will satisfy our every need, that he is going to rebuild and restore all things. Beautiful, what the Lord has told us he will do through this practice. And as we end, I want to kind of take a hard right and get a little bit more practical with you because, like I said, this is really hard. And I want to give you some things that you can walk away with this week and make it feel like it's a little bit more tangible, something that you could start tomorrow. So what I would suggest is that you just start in the secret place with the Lord, doing something that you already probably know how to do, which is pray. Just spend time with the Father talking to him about this, talking to him about fasting, Asking him, how, he, how does he define it? How does he want us to live it out? What does fasting look like to him? And ask him how you can start taking steps in it. So start with prayer. And then maybe take a day and just take some stock of your habits, of how you spend your time, of how you spend your mind. What do you dwell on? What do you reflect on? Do you, this is what I'm working on right now, do you always have to have something playing in the background? Music, a podcast, TV. Are you always distracting your mind? Or... What do you subconsciously think about? What are your anxieties that stir up within you? Or do you have maybe an unyielding routine? Are you someone who's like, I have to start my day like this, didn't do this, didn't do this, then end the day like this. Where does God, where does the Holy Spirit need to break into your habits? And take that list to the Lord and say, what do you wanna do with this? Where am I missing the kingdom? Where am I so distracted and numb that I'm not seeing the kingdom opportunities in front of me? And allow the Lord to help you to start fasting from those things. And then just start. It's like Darrell said with giving a couple weeks ago. If you've never given before, give something and then give a little more. So for fasting, if you decide, I'm going to go the traditional route. I'm not going to um, fast from, I'm going to fast from food. Start with a meal. Start with your morning coffee. That sounds really challenging to me, like really challenging. I don't know. The Lord's like, you're not going to have coffee tomorrow um, because of how you feel about it. But Start with a meal and then go to a whole day, then go to a week. Just let the Lord guide you in it. Let him show you the work that he wants to do within you when you start taking steps. Or right now, we're in a season of Lent. Lent has started. 
So if you're not already engaging in Lent, but you want to, we're only a couple weeks in, you can start now. The Lord has grace for that. Um, So just maybe decide, I'm gonna give something to the Lord. I'm gonna surrender part of my fleshly desires to the Lord until Easter and just see what he does with it.